Welcome to Geek Hard, right here on Reality Radio 101. And now, right to your geeks, Andrew Young and Mr. Green. Welcome to Geek Hard. I'm your host, Andrew Young, and the sky is falling, friends. Never rains, but it pours. A lot of crazy shit going on. Some crazy good, some crazy bad. And my mother always taught me, leave with the bad. Folks, our good friend, Mr. Green, he's not in the best place right now. He's going through some stuff. He's a little sick. And uh, if you're a fan of Mr. Green, you can reach out to him on Twitter, at JG Green, or send an email to geekcardshow at gmail.com, giving your well wishes to Mr. Green. I think that'll help lift his spirits. Thankfully, we do have a little bit of Mr. Green tonight, because later on in the program, you're going to get to hear a interview that myself and Mr. Green did with Jeff Lemire, of course, creator of such things as Sweet Tooth in Essex County. Essex County is coming to CBC as a new television limited series on March 19th, and we're going to get to talk to him about that and the original comic book. In just a few minutes, you're going to get to hear an interview that I did with director Anthony Shim about his new movie, Rice Boy Sleeps. It was a hit at TIFF and is now playing at the Varsity Cinema in Toronto, Cineplex Varsity, and check it out. We get to hear from him about the film and more. It's great. Well, I'm not even here. This is pre-recorded, friends. Why? Because I'm at Toronto Comic Con right now. That's right. But I'm not here alone tonight. In fact, I'm not even alone at Toronto Comic Con. With me tonight as my guest co-host is someone who I'm happy to say is my co-host on another podcast, Back Issue Bloodbath, which drops every Wednesday. Check it out, geekartshow.com. Some would say my better half, and some would say our better voice. Welcome to the program, Petula Neal. How you doing? <laughs> doing all right. How are you? I'm excited that you will be dragging me out of my hobbit hole and into the streets. So... We'll see how I do. Yeah. I think I think you're going to do just fine. I think you're going to do great. And I think you're going to do great tonight. Of course, you and I are going to be giving our review of the first three episodes of The Mandalorian Season 3. I'm very excited about it. I feel like somewhere Mr. Green is screaming the way one would when they watch their planet get blown up. I understand that I am just giving like full seat warmer energy, but you're... <laughs> Your true master, your true apostate is out there, and I'm sure eventually you'll get to hear his thoughts on the whole season. Yeah, I'm sure we'll get to hear his thoughts very soon. But tonight, it's me and Petula, and right now we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, you're going to hear my interview with director Anthony Shim about his film, Rice Boy Sleep. It's all happening right here, Geek Card Reality Radio 101. Hey everybody, Jimmy the Short Order Cook here, asking you, what's better than listening to Geek Hard? Answer, listen to Geek Hard while wearing a Geek Hard t-shirt. And there's a place you can get them at 
tpublic.com slash user slash geekard. We got a bunch of great shirts there. We got geekard shirts. We got a Mr. Green's Tasty Meat shirt. Hell, we got a Back Issue Bloodbath shirt. For all your geek needs with your geek merch, you want to go to tpublic.com slash user slash geekard. I'm not just asking you. I'm telling you. Welcome back to Geek Hard right here on Reality Radio 101. And now, right back to your geeks, Andrew Young and Mr. Green. Welcome back to Geek Hard. Andrew Young and Petula Neal here on this Friday night. Petula, you enjoying filling in for Green? I could never truly fill in. I'm just keeping a quadrant of the seat warm. There yeah. you go. There you go. There's Green. He likes the whole seat, definitely. Uh, of course, he's uh, he's a little under the weather tonight, so people reach out to him at uh, JG Green on Twitter or send us an email, geekartshow at gmail.com, and, uh, you know, send him some well wishes. Of course, tonight we're not here. We're at Toronto Comic Con. We're talking about a TIFF film. We're talking about a film that played at TIFF, and that is Rice Boy Sleeps, directed by Anthony Shim. I got a chance to talk to Anthony this past week. And we talked about the film and more. Let's take a listen to the interview right now. Welcome to the program, Anthony Shim. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you for coming on. Uh, of course, Rice Boy Sleeps, having a good go. Great at festivals all over the world. It's such a personal story. And I think personal stories are something that people connect with. Because that's when you break it down to the personal elements, People will find the human connection. So for people who haven't gotten a chance to check out the film yet, tell us what it's about. Rice Boy Sleeps is a semi-autobiographical film about a young Korean-Canadian boy and his single mother who moved from Korea to the West Coast of Canada. And it's the film takes place in the 90s and it spans over 10 years. And it has it follows their journey in acclimating to this new world and this new culture and as time goes on the relationship becomes more troublesome <laughs> troublesome sure yeah and ultimately they return back to korea for the first time to deal with their past troubles and mend their relationships with their family one of the major parts in this film is su young and what i liked about her is that She's not just one thing, like a lot of stories kind of just usually focus on a parent being one thing, but she's not just one thing. She's many things and she carries so much and it's kind of like how a single parent has to in real life has to be more things than they, they have, they are equipped to be. Was it important for you to get this, this type of character out front and center in the film? Absolutely. I mean, I mean, this is a character that we've seen in a lot of different films and television shows, but they're usually supporting roles. They usually have only, you know, two dimensions to them. And so I wanted to devote an entire film on this character and, and this character's relationship with her son. And because it's a such a familiar character to me, I've been raised by Korean women and I know them to be a certain way. Uh, I know them to be complicated, 
strong, warm, loving people that I've never seen depicted fully with the same kind of complexities and nuances uh, in anything else. And so I, I really wanted to highlight this character, this this type of woman that I felt deserved it. And then the character is largely inspired. Uh, it's not based on, but it is inspired by my own mother. It, it meant something to me to try and do it right. And I think the character is great. Oh, yeah. No, fantastic. Well received. Again, with this film, you know, it's it's got such emotion to it at the end there when she's on the, the hill and she's just screaming. She's letting it all out there. I, I've heard you talk about Han, yep. that, that it's an emotion that really isn't properly translated into the English language. And I feel like that scene right there kind of gave us kind of a view of what that's like. But isn't it so interesting that even like I find, you know, I'm an English speaking person. It's the only language I've ever spoken, but there's still there's words missing sometimes for mm. me to explain how I feel. And I feel that is with every language. I feel like you did a good job of conveying that regardless of language, there's certain emotions that can be felt, even if they can't be explained. Exactly. Because it can't be described or explained verbally in a way that it truly encapsulates all the levels and, and, and elements of that word. Um, so I thought, you know what, I'll, I'll, I'll show it. I'll let audiences experience it. So by the end, when that release comes, you know what it's rooted in. You know what where that's coming from and how much is uh, attached to it all. Then for anyone, you know, you don't even have to be Korean. And then anyone who can just kind of follow that journey goes, oh, I can relate to what that could be like. You know, I've experienced that or I've seen that or I've, you know, I know someone who's felt that way. And in that sense, it's, you know, you can take a word that is so uniquely Korean and go, oh, it's 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 a universal feeling. You know, like who hasn't felt like they've devoted their entire lives to something, worked so hard to just do right in the world, in their lives, and, and just can't catch a break. And it's, you know, it's like there's no other way to express it than to just scream at the top of your lungs, you know, or want to. Let yeah. that burning rage and sadness and you know the, the feeling but but at the same time it it's what drives you yeah to to work harder and to and to love more and to you know and to fight and that's what that word is and and, and so instead of making an intellectual description of it i thought i would show it through a you know to a, her story yeah yeah well i think you did a great job there a lot of the uh the framing choice in this film i think do a really good job with the storytelling you know like when we first meet the family in Vancouver, it's all tight and hard. And there's like a lot of stuff in the frame, like very claustrophobic. When you came to Canada as a kid, did you feel that kind of claustrophobia? Yes. And the interesting thing, the, the juxtaposition there is that we moved from a very small country. You know, mm -hmm. City of Seoul is, it's so dense, densely populated. And, and you, you don't have space, like people don't have room. You know, you're constantly surrounded by people. And then we moved to a place like Canada. We moved, you know, at first we lived on Vancouver Island. And it was unlike anything we'd ever seen before. There was so much space, so much land, the ocean, the mountains. It, they were, you know, they looked gigantic. And yet the irony was that, at least for myself, there was so much fear of this new world that I was thrown into. And I think it's it's just, it was the same thing for my parents. 
and, it, and it's the same thing for I know a lot of immigrant families that you're not able to fully take in all that the world your surroundings have to offer and 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 you're just trying to survive and you're in and, and you're trying to understand how to navigate through this new world and and for so much of it, it did feel like I it, I think back and did feel like, it, you know, you're looking for shelter, you're looking for safety, you're looking for that security because it's so big and scary out there, it, you know, feeling like you need to shelter yourself in that way. But then it also represents the emotional ability or, or inability to open yourself up to all that this new world has to offer you. And you try to find that security in the things that are right in front of you and you're not, you don't have the you don't have the emotional capability to increase the capacity of what you let into you, let into your life. And so that's what motivated and informed the the visual choices of the film in the first act, especially. Yeah, yeah. And then, of course, when we get to the third act of the film, we're back in Korea and it's big, it's beautiful, it's lush. And I know one of the things that you said, one of the things I won't budge on is it has to be shot on film. And that's, uh, you know, again, for a independent film, that is uh, quite a, uh, uh, almost a scary kind of thing to say, like, we're doing it this way, because again, that adds money to the budget. But of course, the film looks beautiful. What was it about film that you felt like the digital couldn't capture? Well, firstly, I just don't like digital photography. I just don't like the way it looks i think digital photography is amazing and it has so much capability and it's and it's so versatile and there's there's a world for it there are things that can be shot and made now you know and there are things that can be viewed much better more enjoyably because of digital photography but when it comes to cinema and when it comes to photography for the for the sake of you know capturing a moment and 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 uh, uh creating art I just don't like the way digital photos and movies look. Of course, there are the exceptions. There are some films there. I mean, there are many films that are shot on digital cameras that I think look incredible. But for the average film and TV, I just I don't like it. I think a part of that, too, has to be like I grew up loving movies and they were all shot on film. And so I think there's something about the aesthetic that has been ingrained into my mind that if you know that I've wanted to make films and and the films I wanted to make look a certain way. And I made my first film digitally because we just didn't have an option. And although it looks good for what it is, I just I go, it's not the way I always envisioned a movie I would want to make to look. And so I figured I may never get to make another movie again. And so if that's the case, then at least I I want to have one movie that I can at least say. It looks exactly the way that I wanted it to look. And so that's why from day one, that was something I, I had said. But it also, it serves the story. It's in line with the world and the time and the emotional journey that the film has. Like it, it, the, the aesthetic of a 16 millimeter film, like it, it supported it very well. And of course, people, you know, suggested like you can always do things in post-production with digital footage where you can alter it to make it look like 16 millimeter. If you're going to make that compromise, then it's like, well, then why, why do anything? You know, like why cast real Korean people? Mm. I can just cast white people and put yellow face on them and then do, you know, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I get I mean, you, that, but yeah. I mean, that's an extreme. <laughs> yeah. But to me, it's like, there's a certain kind of movie I want to make and I'm drawing a fine line, and you cross that line in any way, there's no end to the compromises that you're willing to let yourself make then. And so that's why I said, you know, 
I want to shoot on film. I'm, I, like I'm going to shoot on 16 millimeter film, cast Korean people for the Korean characters and then shoot the Korea scenes in Korea. Because I, I knew that there's a certain amount of authenticity and realism and a feeling that I wanted the audience to get from just looking at the image, even without the sound, that there's a certain feeling I wanted, wanted people to have. Um, a sense of nostalgia, a sense of warmth, a sense of comfort that just like a really great painting or a photograph can evoke certain feelings in people. I wanted to do the same thing. And so that's why that's why I was so adamant on it. Right. And, and as a result, I had to give up certain things. Mm. You know, we had to shoot in 19 days, the entire film. There were certain kinds of shots that we couldn't get because we couldn't afford them, you know, but I don't I have zero regrets. Well, definitely. Well, the movie stands for itself. It's great. And yeah, the idea of making this film, since it is a period piece, it does take place all in the 90s. That's how the films look during the 90s. So that kind of makes sense as well. You mentioned your first film, Daughter, uh, and you had said that you knew nothing about how to make a movie. And that was kind of like trial by fire. You learned how to make a movie by making Daughter. So what were the lessons that you brought to Rice Boy Sleeps? You've been researching past interviews. It's what I do. It's what I do. <laughs> I appreciate that. It's more or less just what I was saying. I felt like on the first film, the goal I had set for myself in my mind was, let's just see if I can make a movie that, that has a beginning, middle, end, and end, and has a coherent storyline. I myself didn't set out to make something really special or really daring or really personal to me. I mean, it was personal in a different kind of way, but... I set a bar that was at a certain level for myself just because of fear and, you know, I didn't know. I didn't have the experience. I achieved the goal I set for myself, funny enough. After I was done, because I could watch it, I go, there are things about it that I just didn't like. There are things I just didn't think worked. But there were also moments where I thought, oh, that's good. I like that. And I know why I like that. And I know how we got it to what it is. And so ultimately, the takeaway was, I wish I had imposed my vision more. I was so insecure of the fact that I didn't go to film school or I didn't make short films. I didn't have all this experience that everything I knew about cameras and editing and, you know, the technical elements of filmmaking, it was just like self-taught. And so there was so much insecurity around that I that I, you know, the people that brought on, I just, I wanted so much to collaborate. I wanted it to be a collaboration and I wanted it to be open to letting others do their thing to the point that I didn't impose my vision enough on the film. Coming into this one, I thought that's the one thing I will not do. And it's not about being, you know, a bully or being closed off to other people's ideas or being disrespectful in any way. I mean, I think it's about finding people that you connect with that are in line with your vision allowing them to do that thing, but it all has to be within the parameters of this very clear direction and vision that I have. And I did not want to budge on that once again, because I thought this might be the last film I ever make. I didn't know if I'd ever get this chance again. And so I thought, you know, if this thing fails, at least I can say I gave it my all and it was everything that I could pour into it. And if it doesn't work and if it doesn't succeed, then I'm just not cut out for this. And I could live with that. But I could not live with calling it quits after the first one because I knew I had more to offer than I let myself. And then on this one, I set a certain, once again, I set a certain kind of goal for this film of like, you know, I want to try and make something that can achieve this. And funny enough, I achieved just that. And so I'm going like, oh, man, 
I should stop being so modest and be more ambitious and try to. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's the that's the key. Making the goal bigger every time is always yeah. moving that goalpost for yourself. Totally, and knowing what you want and saying this is what I want, of course, is the key to success. And it's proven right there with the film and the success of the film, the multiple festivals and the awards it's been given. What has it been like for you to actually experience these things? It's amazing in the ways that that I didn't expect it to be. And the things that I thought would give me happiness didn't and doesn't. I thought to be given awards and complimented and for the film to, you know, to be celebrated in some way, I thought would make me feel whole as a person or something. But I don't know. I thought I had an idea of what that might feel like. And to be honest, it's incredible. It's amazing. It's, you know, it's so overwhelming, but it doesn't feel real. It's hard to take that in and to let it process through my being in a way that is something I can digest and, and actually like put it back into my life. It's just this really kind of surreal thing where I'm just kind of watching it happen going like, cool, this is great. But it's just, yeah, it's not like I'm not, you know, walking around the streets, you know, grinning year to year. But instead, what is amazing is the way that it, the story has impacted people the way it's moved some people, some of the dialogue that I think it's created, that the film has, you know, contributed to the world of film in regards to films about the Asian immigrant experience, that have contributed to that fight, to that cause in a positive way in some way. Like, to feel like, oh, this film now belongs in a category of films, that part, you know, makes me feel proud, not only myself and everyone who worked on it and everyone who supported it. But yeah, it's strange because it's like the film is being received well. And just by default, the attention comes on to me and, and, and people want to talk to me about it. But I go, well, it's, it's almost like the film is its own thing, you know, you know, and the film does speak for itself. And then it's just like, I'm just kind of, it's there to be its translator in a way, because the film can't speak beyond what it is, what it is, is, is its own entity. Um, so you're the Lorax. You speak for the film. I am. Yeah. <laughs> and so <laughs> this film has given me so much. Like I will forever be indebted to this story and to this movie um, and everyone and everything that went into it. But I, I, I don't, it hasn't given me the the kind of joy and happiness that I thought. And I think some other people on the outside think I might be getting, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. No, that totally makes sense. I get it. Well, yeah, no, when you have this experience, it's never going to be exactly what you think it's going to be. And you're going to find the pluses and minuses are in places that you didn't expect. Totally. Now, this film did go very well. So it's not the last film you're ever going to make. You're going to make other films. And I know you're working on some ideas. I know that one is an original piece. Another is an adaptation of a novel. What are the differences when you're putting together these two different projects? Uh, scale. <laughs> <laughs> budget i mean the biggest difference is you know the original piece it's just it's me it's 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 me writing it you know in my own spare time i, I write because i enjoy writing and it's, it's characters that i'm creating out of thin air that that i, I just really love and it's just the, the story is grown out of the characters and that's how i've always written things it's just that you know i find characters that i genuinely care for and love and then i i put them in situations and see where the story goes I try not to think too much about the bigger message or the themes or it's just interesting characters that I 
that I think can get into some interesting situations and see how I can get them out of it. But then the the novel, it, it's the blueprint is there. I'm having to be of service to the foundation that has already been laid out. As the job title suggests, like I am adapting this story into a film script. So the process is different. It involves other people, involves more people, involves people I, I haven't worked with before. I mean, I'm being really vague about it because yeah. I don't think I can talk about it in detail just yet. Totally um, understood. Yeah. The, the details are being worked out still. But um. Yeah, it's a completely different experience. But then once again, I think once we get to actually start to work on it, I think it, you know, it'll be more or less all the same. Yeah, I'm I'm really I'm just I'm looking forward to just getting back to work again. I miss making movies. Yeah, no, definitely. Well, that's that's great. I'm glad that you're getting to make more movies. Again, as I said, Rice Boy Sleeps, beautiful film, really heartfelt. That final scene with the scream and everything like that, that really that that made me feel good and sad and good all at the same time, which uh, which is what you want from a film. And I feel like that's what audiences are experiencing with this. So I look forward to more people getting to check it out and look forward to your next projects, man. Thank you so much for talking with me today, man. And I hope, I hope you have a great day. Thank you. Thanks so much. So that was my interview with Anthony Shim. Of course, you can check out the film in Toronto this weekend at Cineplex Varsity. Check the Cineplex website for showtimes. And, of course, it will be coming to you all eventually. You will get to see it eventually. You excited to see it, Petula? Totally. Totally. I Excitement, fear, anticipation. I'm feeling a lot right now. There you go. Well, hopefully there will be less fear when we come back because this is the way right here. Geek Card, Radio 101. Remember when you used to go to the comic shop and browse through the stacks, picking up comic after comic, talking to your fellow customers and the store owner about what books you should buy? What kind of outside people daywalker nonsense are you talking about? I don't go outside. Well, thank goodness for Back Issue Bloodbath with Andrew Young and Petula Neal. When we talk about comics old and new. Mostly old. But sometimes new. Every Wednesday, new episodes drop at geekartshow.com or wherever you catch your pots. Check it out and have yourself a good. Welcome back to Geek Hard right here on Reality Radio 101. And now, right back to your geeks, Andrew Young and Mr. Green. Welcome back to Geek Hard. Andrew Young here and filling in for Mr. Green tonight, Petula Neal. Of course, Mr. Green, a little under the weather right now. Send him well wishes on Twitter at JG Green or send us an email at geekhardshow at gmail.com. And of course, unfortunately, we can't read your emails on the air tonight because we are pre-recorded because we're currently at the Toronto Comic-Con at the Metro Convention Center in Toronto. So uh, if you're around this weekend, come check it out. You might run into us. I'll be wearing a shirt that says Geek Card and Petula. I might be wearing my number five orange tank top if I can find it, the one I got at the strip club that was in the first Deadpool. 
or there something else. I, I'm going to hit those t-shirt towers hard. It's been a minute. I'm very excited. Yeah, there you go. There you go. There's going to be a lot. If you see somebody carrying like a mountain of t-shirts and you can't see their body because it's just carrying this hill of t-shirts, that's Petula. Definitely. But uh, Petula, you joined me here tonight to talk Star Wars, specifically The Mandalorian Season 3. Created by John Favreau, executive produced by Favreau and Dave Filoni, based on Star Wars, created by George Lucas, produced by Lucasfilms and Walt Disney Pictures, and distributed by Disney Plus. Here to read the synopsis for season three. It's our good friend, the old man. Hey, how's it going? How you, How doing? you doing? Hey, I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. It's good. It's good to see you again. It's, I don't get to see you very often. It's nice. Usually, I mean, usually I... you come on the shows that. They don't have a synopsis on, so I don't get to see it that much. I'm just so happy that you're still with us, old man. I'll never die. I'll never <laughs> die. You're like a goonie that way. Big, right. big for goonies, too. Well, yeah. do, you know, do you know why I'll never die? Why? Because I'm a dancer. That's why. <laughs> so let's see here. We got the journeys of the Mandalorian to the Star Wars galaxy continue. Well, I would hope so, with a show called The Mandalorian. Once a lone bounty hunter, Din Djarin has reunited with Grogu. Meanwhile, the New Republic struggles to lead the galaxy away from its dark history. The Mandalorian will cross paths with old allies and make new enemies as he and Grogu continue their journey together. But wait a second, didn't he give the baby away, didn't he? Here's the thing. There was another show that you kind of sort of had to watch before you watch this one called Book of Boba Fett. Oh, so that's the one where the guy, he, yeah. Boba Fett, he opens up the, the Boba place and like, mm -hmm. tea. Yeah. yeah, that was good. good. Well, like, that's what happened, I mean, right? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So close. You're, on you're really close. Have it on there. Yeah. You know? There we go. Okay. Well, I'll have to check that out then. Yeah. I'm not a big fan of Boba tea. How about you? I mean, the balls. I, it takes a while to get used to, but I think it's all about what else is in there. Mm. It, it creates a whole like mouthfeel experience. You just got to surrender to it. I think it's like mostly tapioca, right? Something like yes. That. Which I would imagine for an older person, not bad, you know, it's all I, right. I don't know your tooth situation. Oh, I've got razor sharp teeth, you know, ever since now. I'm... Okay. <laughs> Well then, I guess you don't need to gum your gum your balls. No, I don't gum no balls. No, no. Sometimes I get my balls gummed, but that's a different story. Anyways, good seeing you. Everybody have a good one. There goes the old man. All righty. So let's get into the Mandalorian season three. Petula, you've gotten to watch the first three episodes, as as we all have. What's your thoughts on season three? I'll. Definitely say that after watching Boba Fett, I was, I was expecting almost a little more action in the beginning because I thought, okay, they're going to come in hot as they did in episode three at one point to this season and they don't want to waste time with the reunion or anything else. So we have been seeing a lot more world building. I was a little worried after the first episode that it was going to continue uh, sort of the quantum leap, Lilith Hobo energy, like town to town, you know, getting in scuffle. But I do like that we're seeing a little more world building, perhaps a little more first order building, who knows. 
but I like that after we got that first episode out of the way and I don't want to say out of the way because I do love hearing that Mando greeting from Grief Karga. I love the way that this is kind of like the script for a really good video game as we see not just Mando leveling up and getting either more armor, new ship, other things, but we also see his friends getting, you know, they're leveling up. You're not just a magistrate. Now you're a high magistrate. He's got little, you know, droids carry stuff around. Yeah, I know, but, Pelly, but he seems like running scams. Yeah, he seems like a little bit yeah. more, more scammier than he was before. It seems like the power is really getting like. I think eventually it's going to go a bad way for old Carl Weathers there. But you mentioned how season three, oh, sorry, episode three, the action kind of picks up there, and it picks up and it gets a little more political. It's almost like I look at season three, I call it Mandor in my head because we get a bit of <laughs> we get a bit of the political world building, but then we also get some action. Yeah, yeah. See, for me, it's like here's the thing: Mandalorian season one and two. That is like a perfect beginning to end story. We had a big, big start to it. We had a grand, satisfying conclusion. Then they went and made Book of Boba Fett and decided, let's stick a bunch of Mandalorian stuff in there. Well, what are we going to do? Well, let's just undo everything from the first two seasons by having the main goal of that story be undone in the Book of Boba Fett and then we bring you back, and now it very much feels like they're going, okay, now what? I feel like there's no mission to this. I do feel like the mission that the Mandalorian presents for himself in the first episode, the fact that that gets wrapped up pretty quickly, it's giving me Hero Season 4 vibes, or Season 3 vibes. It's like, I don't feel like they know what they're doing. I feel like they are using part of this season to ret retcon that spoilers for other Star Wars things. A clone of somebody who we thought was dead shows up in another property at some point. Mm. So they are giving us a bit more uh, meat on the bone of how did the cloning operations continue and how did this very special person end up showing up? later on in the timeline, but earlier in terms of like chronological release of a property. So why are they doing that? I have to trust in a little bit in the felony of it all. But what I will say is I think they do know what they're doing. And I think the line that's most telling was in uh, episode two, the floor isn't lava. It's wet and full of monsters. AKA they call it a mine where Bo-Katan says, you thought your dad was the only Mandalorian. So I, I definitely think that this season, the term the Mandalorian may not necessarily only apply to Din Jaren. And I think we are definitely in a new era and they are trying to bring in the the covert. They're trying to bring in the the sort of Kree's. Maybe not her family. I guess they're mostly dead. Uh, But they're trying to bring in sort of the two sides, like the kind of night owl death watch, like the people who are still ride or die for that helmet life. And then also the planet itself, like partial glass, but there's still a lot of life underground. So I think 
the term now, it, it is definitely going in another direction. I do like that we are wrapping up stories, actually, because now I'm like, okay, now I get where you have to jam that other stuff in Book of Boba Fett, because you are going somewhere. I just don't exactly know yet. But I do like that we've squatted up again, because one of my favorite moments from um, the beginning and end of season one was all those Mandalorians fighting to help Mando get out of town with the baby. And then again, like sort of they did that early on, and then they do that at the end when you have that beautiful scene with IG-11. So there is a lot of like good book endy stuff where they're kind of cracking that open again. So we're starting off with like IG-11, although in a kind of not great, I'm still evil robot underneath it all yeah. uh, format. But I think that the callbacks are going to mean something and I'm willing to trust the people who gave me so many good episodes of other things. Okay. Well, yeah. So basically what, what I'm getting from you is, is that if you're a fan of the idea of the world of Star Wars kind of being bigger than itself and connecting to other things, you're probably going to like where the things are going. But if you're someone who actually liked the compactness of the series before about how you could just watch it as its own little thing, you might not like where it's going. That's what I have to say. Like, you yourself are excited about the opening up of it. Me, I'm like, that just means I have to watch other shit to understand shit. Fuck that. So, We've had some good space flight stuff, though. Like, no, now yeah, that he's got that tiny yeah. lean sheet. Yeah. 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 Pirate fight in the sky. That was We cool. had, like, the whole interceptor, whatever those guys were in episode three. Yeah. Like, there was some good fighting and flying. And I think they are aware that unless you've watched every episode of Clone Wars, which I have not, every episode of Rebels, which I have, and everything else, most of it I have, some of this, it's going to take you a little while to buy in. If you haven't watched all of Clone Wars and Rebels, like, why, do, why should I care about Bo-Katan or any of that? But right when you might be getting super bored, all of a sudden it's like, poo-poo, pew-pew, pew, space fight. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Bo-Katan is one of the characters, though, that I do enjoy. yeah. And in episode three, I don't know if they were this premeditated, but definitely uh, the actress Katie O'Brien that plays Elliot Kane is definitely yeah. feeling a Cara Dune hole in my heart and my parts. Uh, <laughs> he's, she's a model and bodybuilder. Yeah, I went to her Instagram right after that episode. Did, yeah. Sure I did. And good Lord, ma'am. <laughs> she does terrible things, but with that jawline and that posture and those eyes i'm mad i'm mad at it but like i'm not that mad at it like an old-fashioned mind flaying like yeah it's like let's remind ourselves that watching the new republic basically operation paperclip a bunch of old empire people and is gonna end like we know it's gonna end badly but it is sort of how did they get from here to there to here when you think of the the trilogy chunks and it's like, oh, because what so many people say about politics, like usually your your two opposing parties are sometimes too similar or, you know, tolerance towards a certain kind of regime activity often just leads you back to where you started. Yeah. I hear you. Yeah. Google well, Operation Paperclip Kids. And yeah, there you go. <laughs> I like how you say kids. I like how you say kids. I don't think yeah. kids listen to our show. But anyway, it's okay. <laughs> Well, it was definitely check out the Mandalorian season three available now right now on Disney plus we're going to take a commercial break when we come back you're going to get to hear 
Mr. Green on the show, an interview that myself and Mr. Green did with Jeff Lemire, creator of Essex County, right here, Geek Card Reality Radio 101. Want to advertise on Geek Card and be heard by thousands of listeners? It's easy, it's simple, it's fun. Email us at geekardshow at gmail.com for information on our advertising packages today. Welcome back to Geek Hard right here on Reality Radio 101. And now, right back to your geeks, Andrew Young and Mr. Green. Welcome back to Geek Hard. Andrew Young and Patula Neal here, but we're not here. Where are we? We're in the streets. Those Comic-Con t-shirt tower streets. There you go. We're not actually in streets. It's a convention center. Toronto Comic-Con at the uh, Metro Convention Center. We're going to be there all weekend. And hopefully we'll run into you there. Uh, if you want to get tickets, ComicConToronto.com or FanExpoHQ.com. Definitely we want to see you. Uh, but uh, we're getting into our last interview of the night. Uh, myself and Mr. Green last week got a chance to talk with cartoonist Jeff Lemire about one of his first big comics, Essex County, which is now a TV limited series on cbc and cbc gem it's uh first episode is debuting this sunday march 19th so definitely give it a watch and let's take a listen to that interview right now welcome to the program jeff lemire thanks man thanks for having me well thanks for coming on of course essex county a graphic novel series it's been around for a while critical acclaim commercial success people have really enjoyed this uh, very down-home story of events happening in Essex County. And uh, of course, now it is being turned into a limited series, which is coming to CBC Gem on March 19th and CBC on March 19th. So when you first started writing this story, did you ever think it would uh, transfer into other mediums? Oh, geez, no. I mean, I I think back then, uh, I was just starting out as a comics creator. And really, my sole focus was just trying to get my work out as a comics creator and be published. You know, I never even thought that would happen, let alone other things, you know? So I, I, I mean, back then I didn't even have a publisher. I didn't think I'd ever make a career doing comics. You know, it was just really doing it for the passion of doing it. I mean, I couldn't have imagined that it would have had the life that it has had as a book. And then now the chance to adapt it myself as a television series as well. That that kind of stuff was beyond my wildest dreams, I think, back then. To that point, then, like, when, when did you start to realize that the books uh, had that connection with the audience? You know, like, because obviously as a comic creator, you're at home, you're writing, you're drawing, you're, you're doing all those things. You're not, it's not like a, a live performance or you're, you're not face to face, like, right? Yeah, so yeah. When, when when did you start to uh, really notice the the reaction and, and the uh, the love for the for the work yeah it was it was pretty weird i i i mean i had spent a good 
I, I think Essex County was published the first volume of it originally it was published 2006, 2007, but I had really started trying to do comics seriously around 99, 2000. So I, I spent a good five or six years doing a lot of comics on my own. And like you said, not getting any feedback really from anyone. I was kind of doing it in a vacuum and I don't know what really kept me going, to be honest. I'm some kind of insane, uh, I guess, desire just to, just to create, you know, it wasn't until I, I did Essex that I kind of felt like I'd found my voice as a writer and as an artist. And that was the first book I really submitted to publishers. And when Top Shelf agreed to publish it, that was sort of the first step of me kind of getting some validation of, okay, I'm not crazy. Like there's some value in what I've been doing. So that was nice. And then, you know, for such a, a quiet story, sort of so specific to where I grew up, it suddenly kind of took on a life of its own and, and, became a you know an independent hit in the states and everywhere else and uh it kind of took me by surprise but it, it became obvious within like the first year of publication that the book was successful and people were responding to it and which was really gratifying obviously and and kind of gave me the confidence to to keep keep producing new work yeah yeah well i think a lot of people connect with uh, anybody who's had like even like a passing connection with the rural life, living in a rural mm -hmm. community, they can really feel a familiarity with, with the piece. Um, of course, for you, you grew up in Essex County at that time, you know, you're picking up comic books at gas stations, yeah. convenience stores, newsstands. Was there a particular place in Essex County that had the best selection of comics? <laughs> uh, it was, it was kind of hit and miss. You'd have to really like, I knew all the spots and you'd have to get there and kind of scrounge. But uh, yeah, I mean, it was mostly just like local mini marts or gas stations that you could get stuff. And it was kind of just, you kind of took whatever they had, you know, you couldn't really be picky and look for the next issue of something because you just sort of had to take whatever they happen to have that month. And uh, which was kind of cool because it was sort of a, I just read everything I'd get my hands on any Marvel or DC book that was out. I would just, by you know so yeah there wasn't really one hot spot it was more like hitting all the local little spots and trying to find something new so yeah i remember when i was a kid having to go to different stores and yeah. everything like that it, yeah basically, that would be like you set a day and you'd be like trying to hit all of them get all the, the good yeah you'd know which day like the the new stuff usually would come out so you'd try to get there and be all excited but i remember there was a couple series where i actually was trying to get every issue and there would be a lot of driving around with my mom trying to find it at different <laughs> convenience stores, which was yeah. kind of, fun, you know. Yeah. I, I remember getting the bagged comics, like that would be prepackaged. You get two, like one on each and it would oh, yeah, love the co covers yeah. facing each side, but it was never related. Like, in, yeah. like, you know, you'd get like an FF reprint and then like, I, like yeah. Captain Marvel or something, you know, you know, no, you know just kind of like, look, trying to try to push them to see what the middle <laughs> book. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. The middle book was always a mystery until you open it up and be like, ah, oh, Micronauts, damn it. But, right. uh, <laughs> it hey, it, it was always a mystery, right? But it was, uh, it was something I noticed in the, in the first one that when Les is getting the books and he's, and he's picking up Flash. And there's some Batman and stuff. Was the Flash like a first book for you, or was there any other significant definitely DC stuff more? I don't know why. I always gravitated more towards DC stuff, you know, as a kid. I'm not sure why, but um, I, I think the first ones I can remember were actually uh, you guys probably remember these two, the Blue Ribbon Digest. Remember those? They were like small digest size reprints. Oh, yeah, of, yeah, yeah, yeah. Supermarkets. They had Archie stuff. They still, I yeah. think, they still kind of do them for Archie. But back then, DC was doing them. So DC had like their DC blue ribbon. And I remember getting 
there were like a lot of Superman ones or uh, like Justice Society ones that would reprint like old Silver Age stuff, which I didn't even realize at the time were, were reprints. You know, I just yeah. <laughs> but so yeah, I really remember falling into that stuff. And then uh, yeah, it would be like whatever monthly DC books you could get your hands on, what Flash, Green Lantern, whatever. You know. Yeah, I, I went through that with classic X-Men when they did those reprints as classic X-Men. And, and, I, and I did yeah. not realize that they were reprints of from like 25 yeah. or years earlier. And I was like, okay. There you go. Now, of course, when you started drawing Essex County, you'd been living in Toronto for a while. And I remember you saying that the first drawing that came to you for this book was just drawing Lester. You drew him over yeah. and over again, yeah. sitting there, a yeah. little little kid with the mask and everything. When you were drawing that, were you like sitting there thinking like, who is this kid? No, yeah, I think it's the same thing kind of happened with Sweet Tooth where this kid sort of popped up in my sketchbooks in both cases. And the visual of it, like this kid on a farm with the mask and cape and stuff was striking. And then, then you start to like ask yourself questions, like you said, like, who is this kid? What's his story? And you start to write the story before you even realize it, right? So you kind of try to give it context. And then the story just grows pretty quickly out of that. And then from there, you started drawing a lot of hockey because you'd gotten really back into hockey. And yeah. you're reading a lot of the history. The first book, of course, touches on hockey and it's included in there. But the second book, of course, is focused very much on yeah. hockey and ghost stories. And I know it was a created team, like your fictitious team that you created, but like how much of your hockey history went into, because I know you put it in the 50s, were you taking a lot from the era, what was happening in Toronto at that time? Not really, to be honest. I think I was just more the general aesthetic of it that I liked. And then it was all just sort of my imagination or my imaginary version of what I imagined that to be like back then. It wasn't, there wasn't like a lot of real hockey history or characters put into it. It was more just capturing a feeling, I guess, an aesthetic more than any literal sort of things. Yeah. When was the exact moment that you figured out, Oh, if I'm going to continue to tell stories here, I'm going to make this a trilogy. I want all of the families to be connected. Like, of course, like it is in rural communities where you have a lineage family was when when did you decide to make that almost kind of like a mystery part of the story i think i had done the first book kind of in as its own thing you know i didn't really know it was going to be a trilogy the lester story and then i started doing ghost stories again kind of as its own thing and then as soon as i kind of got into ghost stories and realized well they're kind of set in the same setting and and you can start to make connections then the family connection stuff kind of started happening pretty quickly but really, it wasn't until this idea of a trilogy and three books that I started thinking what the third book would be and how to kind of tell the origin story of this place, but also connect all the characters. And so I think it was a little more conscious effort by that point of, of doing exactly what you're saying, trying to weave it all together as sort of like a tapestry in the third book. Yeah. So it was a gradual process across, I guess, all three projects. I was curious, Jeff, when when looking at the books, especially for the era that it came out in, right? Like we're talking the 2000s now, to stick with black and white as a choice over, or was it, I don't even know, like if you can answer that, like, is it a choice at that time to stick with black and white versus going to either a grayscale or obviously full color? Was that something that you had decided right from the get-go or was that more of just a, a situational thing? Like, you know, I think it was just like a situ economical situation. I thought I was going to self-publish it. And back then this was like before the internet and everything. Right. So it's like when you're self-publishing, you're literally probably Xeroxing copies and, <laughs> And black and white just was easier to 
to do that with. And, you know, color printing would have been so expensive and I was completely broke. So, but I think it was really just that when you, once that's just sort of the parameters you have, you just embrace it and enjoy the qualities of black and white, which are great. Would you ever consider doing something like, uh, like some other creators have done and gone back and colorizing it? I think that would just be an excuse to sell more books or something, you know, like, it, <laughs> like it's just for like the completists or something. But yeah, I mean, the story is it's, it's lived a life, you know, now as what it is. I don't, I don't see the need to change it or like go back and remaster it or anything. Oh, I think it looks great the way it is. So that, that that's, that works. I, I was just, just curious because I've seen some others do that and I always find that interesting. Like, yeah, you know, well, it's probably like a, to be blunt, it's probably an excuse to sell the book again to people. <laughs> I'll admit I've been taken a couple of times on this. Like now it's in color. Like, oh, I got to get it. Oh, damn it. All collectors. We get it. We, yeah. We're yeah, exactly. Now this series now being brought into a limited series for CBC. And of course you were heavily involved in the transfer of that as one of the showrunners. And you know, you have a background in film. You went to film school. Was this like a chance to finally get to pair these two mediums together for you to the things you've learned in both comics and film together? Yeah, I guess it was. It wasn't, I didn't really intend for that to happen. You know, I mean, the development process for the show was very long. I think started developing the, as a TV show in 2015 or 16. And originally I wasn't attached as the writer or showrunner. I, I was sort of taking a secondary role, but this story in particular was so personal and kind of my first book where I really found my voice and it, it, I found it really hard to let go of. And when I came on board to be the showrunner and everything, I just sort of embraced that role. And uh, like you said, kind of tried to put my love of, of movies and TV and everything into play as well. So yeah, I guess it really was finally the chance to sort of marry those two things that I had studied. And yeah. Yeah. It, it must be like, it must be strange to see your characters come from a 2d space in black and white to completely three-dimensional full color acted by professionals, yeah. you know, like that. But for you, like, was that uh, like, on, like when those first few days on set, was that uh, like, kind of like, wow, this is you from here to here. Like that's a, that's a journey. Yeah, it's wild, man. I tell you, I mean, it's a long process. Everything from casting to location scouting and all that stuff takes so long. And I was so in the trenches on that stuff that by the time you actually get on set and it's happening, all happening so fast. But then there were moments where I really kind of stuck, stood back and, and kind of saw it from the point of view of me 15 years ago. And, uh, you know, I, for some reason, the character of Jimmy and Lester in particular, when those actors were on set, as those characters, it really felt like, like the drawings coming to life in a, a really cool way. So that was super cool. A story like this, of course, is something that can lend itself to another medium very easily, you know, like, cause again, it's real life. And there's been a number of like graphic novels that are slice of life or, you know, very true historical things like that, that have been adapted into film and television. And people don't even realize that they come from a comic book. Sure, people yeah. in their minds think, oh, a comic book movie or TV show has to be based on a superhero or something yeah, exactly. horror based or something like that. Does it surprise you that still like decades on, we've had so many television series and movies that have come from much yeah. more realistic comics and people still don't. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's that's just the nature of a medium growing up. I think, uh, you know, when I was a kid, when we're probably all roughly the same age, like we you know, comics weren't a part of the cultural fabric the way they are now. You know, none of us could have ever imagined 
when we were going through those three for one comic bags that like there'd be, you know, Moon Knight and Vision and Scarlet Witch TV shows, you know, like yeah, this yeah. Like, surreal, like what world are we living in, you know, but somehow we are here. And also you go to any bookstore now, any whatever, and there's comics everywhere. You know, kids are reading graphic novels, not just superhero stuff. It's become such a huge part of the culture. But yeah, I think there's still a learning curve with a lot of people who just see comics as Marvel, you know, the Marvel movies or whatever. And, and that'll change. It just takes time, you know, and, um, I think it's a compliment a lot in a way too, that the books like Essex or whatever else that it kind of surprises people that those are based on graphic novels and kind of opens their eyes in a way to the potential of the medium outside of one genre. So we've come a long way, but you know, obviously there's still a way to to go before I think people really embrace comics as the medium it is rather than just one genre. Yeah, no, I hear you. Yeah. I guess that's also just the, those Marvel movies in particular are so huge that it, it casts such a shadow that it's hard for people to see beyond it, right? So that's kind of a side effect of that, probably. Yeah, yeah. There's not there's not going to be an end game in uh, in Essex County. <laughs> it, there will be, but it's just a hockey game. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, when you read the books, the kind of the way you weaved everything together, even though it's much smaller scale, that is your end game. You did a great job <laughs> of like. It's like, yeah. oh, everybody, this is how they're all connected. I want to thank you for talking with us today, Jeff. Really looking forward to the series. Of course, the graphic novel series is available in a collected edition from Top Shelf to this day. People should check it out. It's a great read. And oh, of yeah. course, the show coming to CBC. Really looking forward to people checking it out. Yeah, thanks, guys. It was really fun talking. Have yourself a good day. Yeah, you too. Thanks, guys. All right. Thanks, Jeff. There you go. So that was our interview with Jeff Lemire. Mr. Green, get well soon. Uh, people, send your well wishes to Mr. Green on Twitter, at JG Green, and, of course, geekartshow at gmail.com. Uh, Petula, where can people find you? At inatif.com on Twitter, Hive, Instagram, Sproutable, TikTok, at obesacantabit, O-B-E-S-A-C-A-N-T-A-V-I-T, and here with you. Of course, you find everything that we do at geekardshow.com. You can follow us on all the socials, be it Twitter, YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, Pinterest. Just look up Geekard Show. We're there. Uh, of course, you can find everything at Geekard Show, including podcast versions of this very show, uh, which are up Mondays after 2 p.m. Of course, the easiest way to make sure you don't miss an episode is to subscribe to us on your podcasting platform of choice, be it the iTunes, the Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, wherever you catch your pods. And while you're there, leave a five-star rating and review because it helps with the analytics. And, of course, if you just want to reach out and say hi or send your well wishes to Mr. Green as he uh, he hopefully gets better soon, uh, go to geekardshow at gmail.com. I want to thank Anthony Shim and Jeff Lemire for being guests on the show tonight. For Toronto Comic Con, happening all this weekend at the Metro Convention Center. For Anthony Shim, for Rice Boy Sleeps, for The Mandalorian, for Jeff Lemire, for Essex County, for Petula Neal, and for Yuri in the booth. This is Andrew Young saying, if you're going to geek out, you might as well geek hard on Reality Radio 101. Thank you for listening to Geek Hard right here on Reality Radio 101.